Exodus chapter 28, and I think this is highly significant. I probably say that about every single teaching because to me it is also highly significant. But if you will open your Bibles and look at the first verse of Exodus chapter 28, we'll step right into it. The Lord is speaking to Moses. And of course, Moses is up on the hillside now, having gone back up. He has heard all the the, the teachings, at least most of the teachings of the tabernacle, and now he's taking it a step further. He says in verse 1, Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the sons of Israel, to minister as priest to me, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty, You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they may, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. There's an ancient proverb. It's actually much older than you might think. I I assumed it was more contemporary, but it was first made popular by the Dutch Christian scholar Erasmus in 1523 A.D., He cites Homer, however, who said something to the same effect in the 8th century B.C. as his source. So this is an old phrase. I'm going to give it to you first in Latin just because, hey, that's fun. Vestus virum facit. Vestus virum facit. It sounds so spiritual. What does it mean? Clothes make the man. Clothes make the man. That phrase has been around for a long time and has long been an attitude among people. Clothing makes the man or or the woman. And in Exodus 28, we enter what you could call a holy wardrobe. Again, back in Exodus 25, we began a walkthrough of the tabernacle on Wednesday night. We started on the inside with the Ark of the Covenant and made our way to the outer court. There's still a couple of pieces of furniture we still haven't addressed. We'll talk about those this, this next week, perhaps. But... The tabernacle needed workers. So it's not just about building a a tent, a place of meeting. The Ohel Moed is what it's called, the tent of meeting. It's about then servants to work in the tabernacle and to perform the sacrifices and to keep the lampstand lit and to keep bread on the table of showbread, to bring incense for the altar of incense. And of course, once a year to bring that offering all the way into the Holy of Holies. We need servants for this tabernacle, a priesthood and a high priest. And so here in Exodus 28, the Lord says, in essence, suit up. Where this priesthood is concerned, clothes do, in fact, make the man. Now, the Bible often uses outward clothing to convey something of who the person was or at least who the person was supposed to be. Now, put this on to express more than you are. We see this with the kings and their royal garb. 1 Kings 22, verse 10 says, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes. The way that's written in the Hebrew makes it sound very impressive. At the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. So they were in their royal attire speaking something of what they represented as as kings. Well, the prophets were very different. Of course, they were outdoorsmen, (laughs) wearing basic, unadorned, you might even say fringe of society clothing. 
we hear from the prophets or about the prophets, 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah was a hairy man and a leather girdle bound about his loins. This was not the typical dress of the day. This was what Elijah wore as the prophet. John the Baptist was very similar. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, he had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey, and John the Baptist never would have minded meeting on the hillside. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, also repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, of another man in the way that he was attired, that is David, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. And that's been misunderstood. In fact, 1 Chronicles 15, 27 says, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark. David also wore an ephod of linen. He had a robe and an ephod. You're gonna understand that better in just a few minutes. But David wasn't dancing in his underwear. He had a full linen robe on and he had the linen ephod on over that. What's significant about this, people say, well, well then why was his wife so upset? If you've read the story, you know he comes back home afterwards. Everyone goes home rejoicing. David comes home to a spiteful wife, Michael, who was just so put off by his behavior. And she even says, oh, how you've undressed yourself in front of all the women of Israel. And the truth is she was upset because not only was he dancing, but he was dressed in priestly simplicity rather than royal superiority. He took off his royalty and put on the plain linen clothing of a priest. He didn't look like anyone. He looked like all the other priests there. Nothing significant about him. This embarrassed his wife. Clothes make the man. Even God was characterized and is characterized by what he wore, what he wears. Isaiah 59 verse 16 Speaking of Jesus, it says he saw there was no man and was astonished there was no one to intercede. Then his own right arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. And that tells us something of what was going on in his heart. Clothes make the man. Now, when we hear that phrase, we tend to think of it in terms of dressing to impress. You know, gotta look the part. And, and most of us clean up nicely. But the garments of the high priest and of the priesthood of Israel didn't so much express who they were. They expressed who they were meant to be. They put these on to express who they were meant to serve and what their holy office required of them. So there was something substantial in this. Even if the human reality beneath the clothing was sorely lacking, they were yet still to put it on and to wear these things before the Lord. You might say, well, isn't that just posing? No, it's not posing, it's purifying. Isn't it just costuming? No, not costuming, it was calling. They were called to be more than they were. Keep that in mind because that's us. We are called out of who we are or who we were to be more. That's God's desire. That's his intent is how he works internally with us. And so woven into the blueprints of the tabernacle here, we have a pause in chapter 28 and there's divine instruction for the priestly garments, both the high priest and the priest of the Levites. 
This dress code was so important, it's even given before the solemn requirements of priestly ordination that will be given in chapter 29 that will take place in Leviticus 8, 9, and 10, with tragic results, by the way. But this morning, all we're going to do is unpack the priestly wardrobe. And once we've unpacked it, just looking at it, walking it through, we're going to come back and make some application that I think, again, is highly significant. I know it is for me. And Cheryl and I had this conversation last night. By the way, would you pray for Cheryl? She leaves for Ghana on Tuesday. And she's not going because we have a court date. She's going because Judy needs to come home. If you know the story, Judy is, is caring for Christopher, our adoptive son. And Judy is really struggling with heart stuff and, and stress fractures in her lower back. And she's, she needs to get home and get some medical help. So she's going to come home. Cheryl's going to be with Christopher, and we're still waiting for a court date. So could be weeks, could be months. We don't know. But I'm asking you all, just would you please keep Cheryl, especially in your prayers. But we were talking last night, Cheryl and I, about this very thing, about the calling that's, that's on our lives. What is it that we're really supposed to be doing while we're here in this time? And I'm going to come back and, and make that application in a bit. But let's look at the wardrobe itself. Beginning in verse 4 now. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece, and an ephod, and a robe, and a tunic of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. They shall take the gold, and the blue, and the purple, and the scarlet material, and the fine linen. If you study with us Wednesday night, you already know these are the same colors that are woven into the fabric of the tabernacle, especially the inner tabernacle, the holy of holies and the holy place, which was that, that curtain made of these same materials, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen was woven together for that. And, and even the outer uh, screen, if you will, the screen door, I called it, that they went through to come into the outer court. And so all these colors are to be used, heavenly blue, royal purple, sacrificial scarlet, and of course, righteous fine linen, white and clean. You Bible students can draw a parallel to that. But there's one additional thread that's added here, and it's gold, and it's fascinating. What they did was they took sheets of pure gold, hammered out flat, and they cut them into strips and used the strips as thread for the high priestly garment. Amazing. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound too comfortable. Don't worry, it's not against the skin. It's for the outer garments of the high priest. So picking up in verse 6, they took all these materials, and it said, the Lord says, they shall also make the ephod. So this is the first thing to note is the ephod for the high priest. Of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen, the work of a skillful workman. And it shall have two pieces joined to its ends that it may be joined. So the ephod's going to be on the front, it's going to be in the back, and joined over the shoulders. It says, The skillfully woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material of gold, blue, purple, scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six on the names of the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. So it'll be in birth order on the stones. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel and set them in filigree settings of gold. So you have these black onyx stones 
that have written in gold and engraved on them the names six tribes of Israel on one shoulder stone, on one black onyx stone, and six on the other one. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for, again, a memorial. You shall make filigree settings of gold and two chains of pure gold. You shall make them of twisted cordage work, and you shall put the corded chains on the filigree settings. So note this, the ephod, you could call it a priestly poncho. Because that's how it would look. Think in terms of a poncho that comes over the neck and it comes down in the front and on the shoulders you have these onyx stones and then it went down the back as well. Expertly woven, beautifully crafted, sewn together with gold and those black onyx shoulder pads. So kind of a throwback to the 80s. Shoulder pads of black onyx with the names of the sons of Israel. And again, note this, the reason for those, verse 12, Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. The implication is that Aaron was to shoulder the burdens of Israel before the Lord. That as he came in to do his high priestly work, he brought Israel with him. He shouldered their cares. He shouldered their burdens. Do you? Do you do that same thing? Do you think God cared about his people Israel? I mean, if you ever wonder, he had their names inscribed on the shoulders of the high priest. So every time the priest came into the tabernacle to serve, God would see those names. As if God could ever forget, of course not but he wanted them to know that he knew. He was saying to Israel, even as he's already said to us this morning, you are significant. Your name, your tribe matters to me. I remember you and I remember you such that I've got your burdens shouldered. And as Aaron would come in, those shoulder pads, those black onyx stones would remind the Lord or would recall the names of Israel before the Lord God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And again, it's that stunning thought that out of all the people of more than 7 billion on the planet, I matter? Out of all the people of all history, he cares for me? But I don't deserve that. That's not the point. But I haven't earned it. doesn't matter. It doesn't change the heart of God. And that's the point. Your significance doesn't come because <laughs> you're something special. And you may even be something special to me, but understand you're special to God because of who he is, because that's how he is. And in creating and crafting and forming each and every one of us, he made us special. He remembers, he cares. And I'll tell you what, if Jesus could shoulder the cross, he can shoulder your burdens and mine. If he could bear that weight, he can bear any weight that you have to bring before him. So the priestly poncho. Now on the priestly poncho is what's called the breast piece. So the second piece in this wardrobe is the breast piece, and we could call this a priestly pouch. Not a breast plate, as some translations say. It's a breast piece. It's a woven material, as so was the, the, the ephod. The breast piece, verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment 
the work of a skillful workman, like the work of the ephod you shall make it of gold, of blue, purple, scarlet material, and fine twisted linen you shall make it. Verse 16, it shall be square and folded double in span and in length and a span in width. What's a span? Nine inches square, roughly. A span in the way they measure things. Remember, I told you Wednesday night, a cubit runs from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. So about 18 inches is a cubit. A span is from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the pinky when your hand is spread out. So from one to the other, roughly nine inches. Now, I know it, it varies with person, but based on the average person, it was about a nine-inch span. So you can see that's about the size of the breast piece that would then be nine inches square and would be placed and connected to the ephod itself. Both of this soft material, these beautiful woven fabrics and, and with these gold threads. So verse 27 continues on, or sorry, verse 17 says, you shall mount on it four rows of stones. And these would be as in the Hebrew, you would read from right to left. So these would be beginning on looking at the person on the right, but for the person, they would be on the left, and you would see a row of ruby, topaz, emerald. Second row of turquoise and sapphire and diamond. Third row of adjacent, an agate and an amethyst. And the fourth row then of beryl and onyx and a jasper, and they shall be set in gold filigree. The stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name for the 12 tribes. So it's the same thing as with the onyx stones. You have the onyx stones with six names here and six names here, but now every tribe gets their own stone, their own precious stone with their name engraved in it with filigree, just as with the onyx stones, the names of the 12 tribes declare, but now even more distinctive. Think of it this way, the shoulders would declare a people, half here, half here. The breast piece would declare the tribes. So far more distinctive, each precious stone being unique. Though it's all Israel, there are 12 distinct tribes. Which church is the right church? Which one do you attend that, you know, because you want to make sure and go to the correct church. And, and I can tell you all on the hillside this morning, you're there. <laughs> Why the bridge? Why not Life Church? Why not Christ the King? Why not some other fellowship? And it's an interesting question that people have to process as they come to faith in Jesus and try to understand what is this, this spread out, distinct thing called the church? I mean, man, open up, well, don't open up the yellow pages. Just go to Google and Google churches in Oak Harbor. You're going to get a bunch of them. Which one's right? Where do I go that's correct? Sadly to me, with all the options, it's easy just to move from one to the next until you find your particular flavor and you're not offended anymore. Careful, because you're just going to keep moving. It, it's, it's easy to go find, well, this is my comfort zone. This is what I like. This is the style of worship I like, or this is the kind of teaching I like, or, or these people seem pretty cool. You know, like I said, give that time. But I don't think that was ever God's intention with the church. And yet he uses it, doesn't he? We must never forget this, please hear me on this, that in every variation of the church, Acts 2.47 tells us, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is a true church. And if you are seeking and pursuing Jesus, if your love and your faith is in Jesus, you're in that true church. And you can attend here or you can attend elsewhere. We need to break down more 
the barriers and be less territorial in the way we view church. There has been a shifting and a moving in this season. And you know what? God has told me again and again, you need to be okay with that. I'm going to move some people out from the bridge and put them somewhere else. You need to be okay with that. I'm going to bring some people to the bridge from other places. You need to be okay with that because these are my people, Rick, not yours, of which I'm very thankful because the responsibility would crush me. The whole point is that we are one body in Jesus Christ. So please foster and cultivate that view of our brothers and sisters of, uh, in Christ in Oak Harbor, in Anacortes, and throughout this area and region and world. We are one body. We're like on the onyx stones, but we're distinct on the breast piece. Yeah, there are a lot of different versions and variations, but as far as I'm concerned, if Jesus Christ is Lord in that church, then that church is just fine. And they may not do it like us. They might not delve into an hour, hour and 15 minutes of teaching. They may just do 20. That's what they're doing. But if Jesus is praised and people are getting saved, that's the church. By the way, do these 12 stones sound familiar to anyone? If you read through the list, ruby, topaz, emerald, turquoise, sapphire, diamond, Jason's agathist, or ag agate, amethyst, beryl, onyx, jasper, you read the list Feel free on your own time to compare them to the precious stones in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 19 says the foundation stones of the city wall were ordained with every kind of precious stone. And if you compare the two, they're remarkably similar. Why aren't they exact? I think they are. But we have a Hebrew translation, then we have a Greek translation, then we've got English, and we're trying to figure this out and get the stones to be right. We know that sapphire and lapis lazuli are probably the same stone. But understand that the 12 stones on the breastpiece of the high priest are going to be the 12 stones of the walls of, get this, check it out, New Jerusalem. This is after the kingdom. This is New Jerusalem, the foundation stones of this remarkable city that when you see it, you're going to say, that's no moon. That's a space station. <laughs> Star Wars buffs. It's huge, it's remarkable, and the foundation stones on the walls are the same 12 stones, my friends, of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, so God never forgets his people. God never forgets his people. From Moses to the new Jerusalem, God never forgets. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 49, 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. You may be in the midst of quarantine and shutdown and COVID and, and government conspiracies and all the rest. I haven't forgotten you. I am aware of you. And by the way, I've chosen you to be here at this time. I've thought that a lot lately. Praise God that we have been chosen to be on the planet at this time, to do our part at this time. What a remarkable time to serve Jesus in the church. But God never forgets his own. Verse 22, you shall make on the breast piece chains of twisted cordage and in pure gold. 
And you shall make on the breastpiece two rings of gold and shall put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold on the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. And you shall put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod so it's going to connect up there. At the front of it, you shall make two rings of gold and shall place them on the two ends of the breastpiece on the edge of it, which is toward the inner side of the ephod. That's where it's going to connect. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod and on the front of it, close to the place where it's joined above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. Now, I haven't sewn anything in my life, so this makes no sense to me. But those of you who work with sewing machines and fabrics, and you, maybe you're getting this material, how you put it together, and he's giving them very specific ways of doing this. They shall bind the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord. So they're going to be gold hoops or hooks, if you will, tied with blue cord in four places, which takes that nine by nine breast piece with the precious stones and ties it to the front then of the ephod. So it really becomes like one, one uh, piece of wardrobe all together. Put it all together, he says. They shall bind the breast piece by its rings of gold with blue cord. Verse 28, I said that, and the breast piece shall not come loose from the ephod. And verse 29 says, and Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment. And here's why, listen, over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. You shall put in the breast piece of judgment. Remember it was folded over? I called it a priestly pouch. So it's going to be sewn down the sides, the bottom, and the, and the other side, and open in the middle at the top, and something's going in this. You shall put in the Urim and the Tumim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So now we have this breastpiece connected to the ephod. Breastpiece is koshen, and, and it literally translates, it's a tough translation because it's, it's only used here. Uh, it means, they think storage or perhaps treasure vessel or like treasure chest, only it's, it's more of a pouch. So it's a, a storage vessel of some kind, the breast pieces. That's why I call it a priestly pouch because it's like a satchel or, or a bag that contains these strange contents. But before I mention those, verse 30 uses another singular phrase that's also not used anywhere else. It says, Aaron shall carry the judgment or shall, verse 30 again, he shall bear, carry the judgment or bear the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart. That's nasa mishpat. Nasa means to bear or to carry. Mishpat is interesting because it can translate different ways. So he carries the judgment, mishpat, or it can mean decisions. He carries the decisions. It can mean ordinances or law. He carries the law over his heart or even justice. In fact, Isaiah 42 verse 1, which is a servant song, a prophetic song of Jesus that says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth mishpat, that is justice to the nations. So something is being put into this breast piece that has to do with decisions or ordinances or justice. And again, remembering that the ephod bore the names of the 12 tribes on the shoulders the ephod did. The breast piece set the same names now over Aaron's heart. 
And it is a priestly reminder. My brothers, my sisters, it's one thing to shoulder someone else's burdens. It is another thing to bear them on your heart. It's one thing to recognize, oh, this guy's got a struggle. Kind of feel bad for him. It's another thing to act in compassion, to respond empathetically. It's really like the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy, I, I, I get it. I see, the, I see the burden that you're, you're shouldering. Empathy, I feel it. I'm with you in it. The high priest was to have a heart for his people Israel as he represented them with compassion before the Lord, not to coldly go about his job, but as he put on those priestly garments and he saw again, here comes the breast piece that is attached now over the heart. I'm doing this as one who loves this people, as one who genuinely cares. And with that, the most important job that the high priest would perform daily at least, not comparing this to the annual role that he had, but the daily role, the most important job in the holy place at a furnishing that we're yet to see in the description here, the altar of incense, you know what he did there? He prayed. What did he pray? He prayed for the people every single day. You ever tell someone, hey, I'll pray for you, and then you go away and two or three days go by and Maybe an email comes through about that person. You go, oh, that's right. I was supposed to pray for him. That's why I think the best thing we can possibly do when we tell someone we'll pray for them is do it right then. So at least you have once. <laughs> I'll pray for you. The high priest did every day coming in. He would offer incense on that altar. We're going to look more closely at that. Not this morning, but soon, Lord willing. And as the incense went up, his prayers went up for the people from his heart. As the breast piece is set over the heart. Do you do that, brothers and sisters? Do we prayerfully shoulder the burdens of one another? And is this fellowship, because this is our field, as it were, is this fellowship on your heart? Am I looking out beyond my own stuff, my own worries, my own life things? And I'm talking to Rick right now. Am I looking beyond what I have to deal with here with love for my brothers and sisters? Am I truly compassionate? Do I really care for them, for you? Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. See, that's the, that's the practical application of the law, of the commandment of Jesus, which was that you love one another just as I have loved you, John 15.12. Love each other the way I loved you. How do we do that? Bear one another's burdens and you fulfill that law. By the way, what was it that the high priest spoke, especially annually, when he entered the most holy place? Annually, once a year, he came in there. What was it that he was supposed to say? Does anyone know? Nothing. He didn't speak. I find that interesting when you think about other religions. No incantations, no mantras, no religious liturgies as he came before the Ark of the Covenant on Yom Kippur once a year, he was silent before God. And yet in that silence, even so, he bore the names of the sons of Israel. You could say the names were spoken even without a word because they were born on his shoulders and they were over his heart. But listen, the, the high priest was also a conduit of revelation, which is pretty cool a mediator, if you will, between God and their people 
the earthly source of, of heavenly wisdom, if they needed an answer of divine direction, if they weren't sure which way to turn, which way to go, look again at verse 30. You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Tumim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. Why's he got to check with Uma Thurman? I don't understand. What's she got to do with this? <laughs> Urim and Tumim, which mean lights and perfections. The Urim, the lights. The two mean perfections. What does that mean? I don't know. In fact, nobody knows how these things worked, what they looked like, even what they were. There were some, some kind of implements that went into this pouch that people have tried to explain, but there, there's no clear answer of what they were or what they did. Some have said that they caused the precious stones on the breastpiece to light up and give answer. <laughs> I don't know. Sounds a little weird. But they're placed, whatever they were, into the pouch of the breast piece, and they interacted in a way that revealed to the high priest godly judgments and godly truths and, and the Lord's divine decisions for the people of Israel. And you might think, wow, wouldn't that be great to have that? Lord, I don't know what to do. Should, should Cheryl leave for Ghana now? Go get the urim in the tumim. And let, let's, let's ask the Lord. It'd be awfully nice to have some kind of just, you know, divine mediation device. It's probably good that we don't have them. Don't have a bead on what they were or, or, or where they are because we would just turn them into amulets every morning. We'd grab the Urim and Tumim and we'd be rubbing these things, looking for answers. We'd throw them out on a table. We'd like roll in the dice. We'd mix them with soup and see how they rise. I mean, not, we'd do weird stuff, guaranteed. We'd turn them into idols. But we have so much better. You want answer? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has made the world. Jesus is our light and perfection. You need light? You, you need enlightenment? Go to Jesus. You need some issue in your life, perfected, completed, made right. You go to Jesus and you talk to him and you ask him and he will bring the light and he will perfect the issue. He is far better than these implements that went into the breast piece. Well, verse 31 says, you shall make the robe. So this is now the, the third issue, the robe of the ephod, all of blue. And there shall be an opening at its top. In the middle of it, around its opening, there shall be a binding of woven work like the opening of a coat of mail so that it will not be torn. So the robe now is like a priestly cloak. It was worn under the ephod and the breastpiece. So you got the first thing you see on the top there is the, the breastpiece, and then that's attached to the ephod, which goes over the shoulders like that poncho, and then under that a robe. And this robe would be all blue, and it was short-sleeved, went all the way down to about the calves, below the knees, and it was all blue except for the hem, verse 33. You shall make on its hem pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material all around on its hem, and little bells of gold between them all the way around. And then he describes it, a golden bell and a pomegranate. The golden bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe. Verse 35, it shall be on Aaron, 
when he ministers, and its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord so that he will not die. <laughs> so you got jingle bells. And these little jingle bells would jingle as he moved about inside the tabernacle, and especially when he went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, it's how they all knew he was still alive in there. This was serious business to come before the Ark of the Covenant. Man, you better move the right way and do it the correct way because you are coming before the presence of the Shekinah glory of God in that place. So God gave this little device. So as he moved about, they could hear him coming and going and they, they knew where he was and, and kind of what was going on. By the way, I've got a picture. If you'd like to see it sometime, I'll, I'll try and bring it down. But I have a picture of one of these little bells. It was actually discovered from the second temple period. It's one of the high priestly bells, bells from the robe. And a guy by the name of Elie Chacron found it uh, in 2011. They discovered this in the diggings of a water tunnel that ran from the Temple Mount down toward the city of David. And so all of that, that schmaltz, as, as uh, Roni would put it, would flow down there. And, and as they're digging in there, they discovered one of these little bells. It's remarkable. I see how quickly people get into idolatry because I got this picture and I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> Love to have that bell and hold on to that little bell. But it's fascinating to me, and this is legit. So this has now been proven that what the Bible said was to be on his robes. Yeah, it was on the robes because we found proof of the little bell itself. Well, the robe was that blue coming down to about, again, calf length with the bells and pomegranates all the way around it. And then the next piece is the turban, the turban and the plate of gold, which would be a priestly crown or diadem. Verse 36, you shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal holy to the Lord. Kodesh le Yahweh. And they don't know if it was Kodesh above and then, or Kodesh and then le Yahweh like that, or if it was one long writing. They, they think probably just one writing together, Kodesh le Yahweh, across the, the front of that little, that plate of gold. And that would then go over the turban, you shall fasten it on a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban, and it shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead, note this, that they may be accepted before the Lord that they may be accepted before the Lord, he would wear this crown that said, holy to the Lord. What's that mean? This was a profound reminder of their chosenness, the chosenness of this people, that they, the, holy to the Lord, it wasn't the high priest who was holy to the Lord, although he was, but he was holy to the Lord as a part of a people who were to be holy to the Lord, the chosen ones of Israel. And this was a reminder, and that's, that's important to note, it's that they may be accepted to the Lord, not that he may be accepted to the Lord. It wasn't just for the high priest. We get that wrong. We think, oh, it's a crown. It's got writing on it. It speaks of the man wearing the crown. No, it speaks of the people who the man represents. And those people are chosen before God. How do you know that? Because Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 3 says the same thing. It's the only, two, only other place in the Bible where Kodesh le Yahweh is written. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. Israel, holy to the Lord. 
Revelation chapter 22, verse 4 says of you, says of me, they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. I like that. There's going to be a mark, mark of the beast. People are afraid that perhaps the masks are the mark. The masks are not the mark. Others are afraid that, well, perhaps the, the vaccine is going to have you know, the mark of the beast. It's going to have a little embedded chip in it, and it's going to get into you, and you're going to have the mark of the beast. Let me just tell you real clearly, I think the Bible is, is specific that people will know when they're taking the mark. You're not going to get a vaccine and find out, oh, I've got the mark, oh, no. No, it's, it's a number or the name of the beast, and you, not you, people will know. People, when they take the mark of the beast, are going to make a decision for the beast against Christ. They'll know what they're doing. It's not going to take you by surprise. You're not going to suddenly look down and your ATM card bursts into flames because it's the mark. The beast is always counterfeiting. You're going to get a mark, my name or the 666, either on your forehead or your right hand. Jesus says, I'm going to give you my name. And that's a name I would love to have on my forehead. Well, verse 39 you shall weave the tunic of checkered work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash the work of a weaver. So then add to all of this, all these pieces. Now you've got the ephod, and then you've got the breast piece on that. Under that, you've got the robe, and then you've got the turban and the plate of gold on it. Then you have what we call the linen tunic, and this was long-sleeved and went all the way down to the feet. The white linen tunic that went under everything else with the blue robe over that and then the ephod and breast piece over that. And this linen tunic was, we could call it the priestly dressing gown. I couldn't come up with anything else. He has dressing gown, that's, that's kind of what it is. And then the linen sash, which is the priestly belt. And all this put together the outfit, the ensemble, if you will, of the high priest. And verse 40 tells us, for Aaron's sons, you shall also make tunics and you shall also make sashes for them, and you shall make caps for them, for glory and for beauty. Tunics, caps, and sashes were the uniform of all the priests, highest to lowest. So the high priest was wearing the exact same thing as all the rest of the priests, except then the high priest had the robe and the ephod and the breastpiece and the turban and the, the plate of gold on the front of it. But underneath, he had the same linen garment and the same linen sash that the rest of the priesthood would have. My friends, I, I point that out because this linen garment is a beautiful, profound picture of bright, clean righteousness. And you may remember this, Psalm 132, verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy. The Revelation 19, verse 8 says it was given to her, speaking of the church, to clothe herself in what? Fine linen. That's what the priests wore. Fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. My brothers and sisters, righteousness is never flashy. The righteousness is not the gold plate. It's not the gold thread woven with the blue and scarlet and purple material. The righteousness is seen in fine linen, white and clean. Righteousness doesn't draw attention to itself. Righteousness just is good. It's never self-serving. In fact, even the phrase self-righteousness is mutually exclusive. 
Righteousness is just being right before the Lord. Verse 41, you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall make for them linen breeches. Oh yeah, one more thing. Linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so they will not incur guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. The linen breeches, which is the seventh part of this entire outfit, are priestly boxer briefs. It's what they were. Just so that, even though the, 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 the garment goes all the way down to the ankles, all the way down to the feet, still, if they're going up the ramp to the altar, they, God wanted to make sure everything's covered. Everything's covered. Mark Twain agreed with Erasmus, saying clothes make the man. But he added, naked people have little or no influence on society. I think some of our pop stars today ought to hear that. But you know what? All joking aside, holiness is modest and is decent and is respectable. And so the Lord outfitted his high priest and his servant priest that they might be suited to the task. We're in a society that has thrown modesty away. A society that, that says, I have the right you know, to bear it all if I want you to march down the street in a parade or to, to fire off a, you know, a, a text to, to put something on Facebook, though they'd probably take it down quickly. But Instagram is just filled with flesh. Immodesty. Immodesty is as far away from holiness as you can get. It runs the opposite direction. Well, does that mean we have to wear a suit and a tie every time? No, it just means that holiness is modest. It doesn't flaunt the flesh. It's concerned about the spirit. Well, we've gone through the whole chapter. There it is, the priestly garments. Interesting, curious, what does it have to do with anything? In fact, what does it really mean to us today? And I'd like you to turn back to Revelation chapter one. Let's make some application. First of all, when you consider the high priest, you gotta consider Jesus, who the Hebrew writer said, and we'll see in a minute, is the high priest of our confession. So we're looking at the high priest. You got to think about Jesus, right? So let's look at what Jesus looked like. Let's look at how he was attired last time John saw him. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, or menorahs. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Now watch this. Clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, girded across his chest, with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun, shining in its strength. Check this out. Think about this. The high priest was costumed got to get rid of a B here. Hang on. I'm not going to mess. Just give me a minute. I just don't want to get stung, man. Just land on my water. Good. Gotcha. <laughs> Sorry. 
So look at Jesus and compare him to the high priest. Think about the difference. The high priest was costumed for his calling to indicate something greater than himself. Jesus wears all the revelation of his glory. Notice the only two pieces of actual material we even see are a sash and a robe. The rest of the description of John has nothing to do with what Jesus was wearing, but who Jesus is. His feet of burnished bronze, his eyes like flames of fire, his hair white like wool, his face shining like the sun in its strength, out of his mouth coming that sharp two-edged sword. I mean, this is all Jesus. This is all character and nature and authority. It's remarkable. The glory is all him. He didn't have to put anything on for that. He's just got the simple linen robe and then a gold sash around his chest. Jesus doesn't dress too impressed. He, he, he doesn't look the part. He just is who he is. Completely different than the high priest. He is who he is inside and out. What you see is what you get with Jesus. There is no difference between the heart and the expression and the outward view of Jesus Christ. But listen to this. Think about this. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, a couple of books to your left there. I used to think, and even taught this years ago, and I think you can, you can make, you know, comparisons, whatever, but I used to think of the high priest of Israel as a picture in type of Jesus the Messiah. High priest of Israel, high priest of our confession, right? He's not. He's not. Watch, follow with me. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And any Jew who heard that in the first century would immediately think of the high priest in all his vestal glory. The robes and the, the blue and the purple and the red and all the colors and the gold thread, all that. That's, that's the picture that this would call up, the high priest of our confession. And then it says in verse 2, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Moses, Moses was more apostle than priest. Moses wasn't the high priest, Aaron was. But the Hebrew pastor here is making the comparison between Jesus and Moses, not Jesus and Aaron. And even in that comparison, you think about, well, Moses was more of an apostle, really. Moses was an apostle, not in the name of the 12 apostles, but he was a sent one. That's what apostle means. Moses had an apostolic calling in that he was sent by God to go back to Egypt and deliver his people and bring them to the promised land. He was an apostle of sorts. And in that way, he was not Aaron. Interesting, he, not Aaron, is being used as a picture of Jesus in his first coming. Jesus was a sent one as God sent Jesus to the earth. And Moses even said there would be that comparison. Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. So Jesus is patterned. Moses is the type, not Aaron. Not Aaron, the high priest of Israel. But you might say, yeah, but 
But still, didn't the Hebrew pastor just call him the high priest of our confession? And the answer is yes, but not like Aaron. The priestly order of Jesus was fundamentally different. And I think some of you know where we're going with this. You see, Psalm 110 prophesied, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron. Jesus isn't even of the tribe of Levi, which you'd have to be if you were an, a member or a part of the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah the royal tribe, not the priestly tribe, and yet he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you remember who Melchizedek is? It's stunning in the church today and even in the church of the first century, as the Hebrew pastor points out, that people didn't know who Melchizedek was. And many don't. You can read about him in Genesis chapter 14. He comes, he meets Abram. As Abraham is coming back from the war of kings, out comes this king from Salem. He's king of Salem, and his name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of righteousness, king of Salem, peace. And he comes out and he meets Abram, and he brings out bread and wine, which is remarkable. And Abram sees him and gives him a tithe of all the spoils of war. He worships this, this Melchizedek. This enigmatic, strange person who receives worship, who brings the bread and wine. And if you look over now, skip over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 17 says, It is attested of him, that is of Jesus. And quoting Psalm 110 verse 4, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, skip down to verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So you had to have the follow-up priest. You had to have someone come after, right? Because death was a factor. But he goes on and says, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood continually, permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy and innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Note that that has nothing to do with the clothing he wears. It's who he is. And he says, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. What was that oath? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now listen to me. The significance of this is captivating. If Jesus Christ, the high priest of our confession, is of a different priesthood, so are we. So are we. So are we. What are you saying? Well, Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But my friends, we, we belong to a different priesthood. Even what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 2, 9, he's, he's quoting specific descriptions of Israel, but we're not of Israel. 
or we're grafted into the promises, but we are of a different priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. Listen to me. Our priesthood is out of this world. Our priesthood is bigger than anything that Aaron and the Levites could possibly have imagined back in their day. Bigger than anything that, that Aaron and the Levites did for all that they did just kind of pointed forward. All the sacrifices pointed forward because they had to keep doing them over and over and over. All the work was not done. But the Bible tells us in Revelation 1.6, he has made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. Revelation 5.10, you have made us a kingdom and priests to our God and we will reign upon the earth. The priesthood didn't reign. The Aaronic priesthood was not a reigning priesthood, but the priesthood of Melchizedek, he was king and priest. He reigned. Jesus is king and priest. He reigns. We in this priesthood, the priesthood of our high priest, the high priest of our confession, we reign in our priesthood. Don't get heady with this. Just listen. Revelation 20 verse 6 says, they will be priests of God and will reign with him for a thousand years. Our priesthood is so far beyond where we are right now. The priesthood that is promised to you and to promise to me is beyond today. It's coming. You could say we are in priestly preparation right now. We are at best priests in training with a kingdom calling and eternal focus that is so much more than even simply being traveling tabernacles. And we've made that comparison. You know, like the tabernacle bore the Spirit of God as they went through the wilderness. So we are temples of the Holy Spirit now. And we're, you know, we're travelers. We're sojourners in this world. But we're more than that. As priests in training for the kingdom come. And please, I, I, I want you to get what I'm trying to say here. Don't churchify the kingdom. And don't churchify what it means to be in training for the kingdom to come because, my friends, this is an afterthought for far too many Christians in the world today. This is secondary. We can get so wrapped up in political battles and, and media hyperbole and the American cultural clamor that's all around us, we can be so like this. And so many of us have been or are and I'm including myself, it's so easy to get caught up in the things that we see around us and not be like the sons of Issachar who not only understood the times, but they knew what Israel should do. They had it down. My friends, right now, this is not our battle here at the end of the age. Do you realize that our battle has been waged, fought, and won 2,000 years ago at the cross? So I'm not fighting for my rights. I'm not fighting for, for my ability to do what I think I need to do. You know what? Even Bible prophecy, and, and I, I hope you're hearing who this is coming from because I love Bible prophecy, and I love teaching Bible prophecy, and you can't teach the Bible without teaching Bible prophecy, but even prophecy has become for some in the church the soothsaying of current events. Hey, did you see what's on the news today? You know what the Bible says about that? Hey, do you think that this might be that? Hey, did you check this out? I get emails all the time. Please keep sending them because they're a lot of fun. But getting real excited. You know what? What I see happen sometimes, even with Bible prophecies, it draws believers' heads downward instead of upward. We get so caught up in what's happening right now and trying to make parallels. Do you think that guy's Antichrist? I think maybe he's Antichrist. I don't know, but could he be Antichrist? 
I'm looking for Jesus Christ, right? Where I don't even think we'll see Antichrist. I hope not. I don't really want to have anything to do with Antichrist. Do you think we may be on the verge of the tribulation? I don't want to see that. I just want to be with Jesus. But again, it's, it's a distraction, and I don't believe it's God's intent for us. I've been asked several times in the last few months, Rick, when are you going to do another prophecy update? Look around. We're living a prophecy update. This is a prophecy update. You can find a prophecy update on CNN or Fox News. I'm not sure which one's telling the truth. I honestly don't know. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, says, If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. That's the thing about prophecy. It's best interpreted looking back. Fulfilled prophecy is a whole lot easier to interpret than that which is unfulfilled. The prophecy that we haven't seen fulfilled yet, we just have to look at it and say, well, the Bible says it literally, so I assume that's how it's going to happen. What does that look like in America 2020? I don't know. I'll tell you when it's happened. Then we'll have a nice prophecy update. You'll be like, yeah, we all know that. I know. It says when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. But you know how he begins that? passage, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, love never fails. Let me repeat that. Love never fails. Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And when we get drawn into this world and the things of this world and what's happening in our culture, we're missing the point. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. So what are we to do as we wait for the kingdom come? You ready for this? Suit up. Suit up. Put on the garments of your ministry. See, we have been given priestly garments for our priesthood, not the ironic priesthood, not, not the blue and the purple and the scarlet and all the rest. That's not our garment. Our garments are different. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you start. If you're not a believer in Jesus today, you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You accept him as your Lord and your Savior. You give over your life to him. You say, I'm done sinning, and I receive you as my Lord. Forgive me of my sins, and you walk, but you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Romans 13, 14. Galatians 3, 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. So put on Christ. How? I believe in him. What do I do next? Get baptized. And there's something, and it's beyond human comprehension, that happens when you go into the water and come out. You have clothed yourselves with Christ. Baptism doesn't save you. It's faith in God's grace that saves you. But you get clothed. And that's more than just symbolic, folks. There's something that happens that we will understand hereafter. So you put on Christ. You clothe yourself with Christ in baptism. Colossians 3, verse 12. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, and watch these garments, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. That means putting up with one another forgiving each other. 
whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, which means from the cross as he's being crucified and spat upon and shouted at, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If he can do that, then our calling is to forgive anything that has been said or done against us. Can you wear that? He says, beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. What have we been talking about recently? Isn't it remarkable? Love God and love people. Put on love. Ephesians 4.22, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Man, throw that in the dirty clothes hamper. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And you want to fight the real battle, the one that we're called to fight? Man, Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6, 14 begins to describe that armament, you know, having girded your loins with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and like the priests, my friends, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. In other words, suit up. Put on the garments of our salvation. Now, this, this royal priesthood is essentially different in attire from the priesthood of Israel because it's not the priesthood of Israel. It is the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus Christ, who I believe, by the way, was Melchizedek in Genesis 14. But there is one similarity, and I'm going to end here this morning, one similarity between us and the high priesthood and the priesthood of Israel. Listen to this, Exodus 28, verse 41. You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. They suit up. And, note this, you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And it's the same for us. Anoint them, you give them their spiritual gifts. Our anointings is our giftings from the Lord. What he has given each one of us uniquely and individually. I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. Guess what? I don't either. But Jesus does. And if you want to know and if you want to flow in the anointing that's been given to you, you ask him. You don't pull out the urim and the tumim. You ask Jesus. Go to, what, what are my gifts, Lord? Look, I promise you, if you just begin praying that, you might not get an answer today. You might get, not get an answer tomorrow. You may pray, what are my gifts, Lord? Will you, would you show me my anointing? And begin to pray that. He will show you. That will become clear to you. But we are to be anointed with our spiritual gifting. He says, ordain them. That's our spiritual calling. And we are called to be the priesthood of Jesus. And you can go back through the verses that we just went through. This is what we wear. This is what it looks like to be a priest of Jesus in these last days, humble and kind and loving and bearing and forgiving. That's what we are to do. That's our focus. Ordain them with spiritual calling. And then finally he says, consecrate them. We have a word for that, sanctification. 
being made more and more like Jesus in our day-to-day lives. To what end? God says that they may serve me as priests. Right now, believers in Jesus, we continue to be gifted, called, and sanctified in priestly training. But very soon, we will be priestly reigning. And the question is, are you suited to the task? Are you ready for that? Will God find you clothed in righteousness when he comes? Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Father, would you prepare us with the priestly garments of our salvation? Lord, we are righteous because you have made us so. And what we wear before you and how we bear ourselves in this world, Lord, becomes so much more intrinsic to our nature and character as we have been changed by Jesus. I pray that you teach us to wear humility, to function, Father, from a place of of kindness and compassion and gentleness and patience, Lord that we would be wearers of these things and in this world looking to see how can we serve, what can we do, how can we love more like Jesus in this fellowship, in the larger church, and in this messed up, broken world, how can we be like Jesus? I ask, Father, that by your Spirit, you will teach us these things and make practical all that we've talked about this morning that we might be ready, Lord Jesus, when you come. In Jesus' name, amen.